Thank you for listening to the Highlander Podcast, where we have conversations about the past, present, and future of the outdoor industry. Thanks to Utah State University's Outdoor Product Design and Development Program for making it possible and for training the future product leaders of the outdoor industry. Learn more about the program at opdd.usu.edu. The Highlander Podcast is sponsored by the Outdoor Recreation Archive, a collaboration between OPDD and USU Special Collections to preserve the history and print materials of the people, products, and brands of the outdoor industry. Follow the archive at Outdoor Rec Archive on Instagram. The Highlander Podcast is sponsored by the Utah Outdoor Association, a business association focused on elevating Utah's outdoor industry through educational programming and events. Their membership consists of Utah's outdoor manufacturers, retailers, outfitters, and guides. Member benefits include networking opportunities, recruitment of talent, and brand promotion. More information about volunteering and membership is available at utahoutdoor.org. On this episode of The History of Gear, Mark Pagan, founder and inventor of Chaco, talks about the whitewater boom of the 90s and its influence on sport sandals, the creation of Gecko, which would become Chaco, and his newest venture, Tread Labs. Joining me today is Mark Pagan, the founder and the creator of Chacos. Thank you for joining me. Of course, it's a pleasure to be here. <laughs> it's been been great to chat with you for the last well, a little while. We've been talking for a few months, and it's been great to connect and just get to know you a little bit better and your history and all the work that you've done in the industry. But um, I'm glad now we can do it on the record. Um, so I, I guess I to start, I really am curious, like, I know a little bit about about the backstory, but I'm curious, what was your first connection to the outdoors? We'll, we'll get into how you got into product, but what are your earliest memories of connecting to outdoor activities? I know river rafting, fly fishing are important to you. Where did you learn those things, and and where did that love of the outdoors come from? Uh, I think the the love, my love of the outdoors, really started when I was much younger than that. When I was uh, just a kid, uh, my dad would often take us hiking. Uh, we went camping as a family. Uh, there was a particular place. I grew up in Buffalo, New York, and there was a particular place called uh, uh, Gore Valley, Zor Valley. Uh, we used to go hiking there. It was a creek, and there were waterfalls, and we'd go swimming and hiking in the woods. It was just a great time. And uh, I remember, you know, early gear from REI when it was very young. Um, so really, I, I credit my dad. My dad also became a sailor when I was in grammar school, so I learned to sail from him. So he, he was really the one that inspired outdoor activities. And in high school, I did backpacking and we went on whitewater canoe trips. So it started pretty early. When did you become aware of, obviously you have a connection to the activities. When did you become aware of the products or the gear itself? I like to share the story of one of our students who said she discovered product design when she went on a, a through hike for hours on end, she had to stare at the backpack in front of her and she started to notice all the details and, and the, you know, the, the certain kind of webbing that was used and all the attention that went into product. Did you have a moment like that where you discovered, oh, people actually make this stuff and I could be that kind of a person? Uh, it was probably uh, early high school. Um, I went on a uh, four week bicycling tour, an organized tour with a bunch of other teenagers. And so we had our panniers and our handlebar bags. And I remember shopping for the raincoat. Gore-Tex didn't exist. And so how do you get a raincoat that you don't get all sweaty in when you're riding your bike? So it was right around that time. Hmm. That's great. Um, well, and then so I guess walk me through how you got interested in the activities that ended up connecting you with um, with footwear and got you thinking about needing better footwear for the activities you were participating in. Sure, well, as I mentioned, um, in Western New York State, uh, in the spring when when the snow would melt and there'd be a lot of runoff, we'd go on these whitewater canoe trips. And uh, invariably we got soaking wet and we didn't have any good gear. It was usually snowstorm on the ground, it was really cold. And uh, later when I moved to Colorado, um, uh, in the 80s, late 80s, um, 
I answered an ad in the local paper for a river guide. And I thought that my whitewater canoeing experience and my sailing experience would would give me uh, you know enough of a leg up to get a job as a river guide. So I got a job as a river guide in that first summer uh, guiding. I just bought a, a cheap pair of sneakers. I remember they were in the uh, the window in Grand Junction, Colorado, and one of them had gotten faded, so they were super cheap. You know, they say that uh, uh, the similarity between a savings bond and a river guide is that after thirty years, they both mature and start to earn money. So. As a poor river guide, I squished around in wet tennis sneakers for a year and saw then uh, the early Teva and at that time Alps sandals, which were um, synthetic materials uh, in a sandal, which I had never seen before. And I thought, wow, that that's the way to do summer river footwear. Oh, that's great. Um, so you start, you know, using these products, you start to understand like what doesn't work about them. Is that kind of what leads you to start experimenting with creating your, your own footwear? And where did that come from? Were you a tinker, tinkerer? Like wh where did that background of, you know, being able to prototype your own products come from? Right. Well, um, no, I, I guess I was a little bit arrogant. I, I, I didn't, I never wore Tava or Alp sandals. Um, I mm -hmm. went directly from my squishy wet tennis sneakers to prototype Chacos. So mm -hmm. I had uh, in between, um, you know, high school and showing up in Colorado, I had uh, a shop in Northern California in Arcata called Shoestring Cobblers with a partner, Paul Schulman. And he and I made custom shoes and boots uh, for people as a college town. Humboldt State University is in Arcata. It's a great town. And we made custom leather uh, boots and shoes um, for all kinds of people and all kinds of things. Paul was a uh, was a part time clown, and he made clown shoes on the side. <laughs> um, and so, when I got a job in Colorado as a river guide, and I saw these sandals, I thought, "Oh well, I have basic shoemaking skills. I can I can put together, and I know where to get synthetic materials and nylon webbing and plastic buckles." I can figure this out and I can actually make something that I think is better than Teva or uh, Alps. And so I, I just made them myself for myself uh, that first year. Mm. Uh, it's, it's amazing that having that insider knowledge of how footwear comes together, you weren't deterred by the by the challenge of creating a footwear brand. In my experience, talking to people who have started footwear brands, <laughs> A lot of them say it's one of the hardest, hardest products to design around, considering all of the size ranges and the effects it has on, on the body and the impact. And, um, you know, we might be jumping ahead a little bit here, but what do you think the hardest thing about starting a footwear brand is? And I guess, would you agree with that around the challenges of creating good footwear? Hmm. What is the hardest part of creating a footwear brand? Um, well, I, I think you have to separate, um, you know, creating product from creating brand. I think there's sure. two two giant buckets there. Um, on the product side, I mean, I don't know what I did in in 1989 when I, you know, first started offering. Uh, at, at that time, it was Gecko sandals. We we hadn't changed the name yet, but when I first started mm -hmm. offering the sandals, I don't know that that business model could work today. I mean. I started, you know, um, doing them custom, one-off. So I'd get to the end of a road trip, and one of the customers would say, uh, hey, those are cool sandals that you're wearing. You know, where do you get them? And I'd say, well, I made them, and I could make you a pair. And so we'd pull out one of the floorboards from the raft, and I'd get a piece of paper, and I'd draw their feet, and uh, they'd send me $30, <laughs> and I'd send them a pair of custom-made uh, gecko sandals at the time. And so... And it was just so bare bones. And, and the first year I actually made them to sell, they were made so much handmade. I mean, there were two or three people that would help me. It was a spare room in my house. And uh, we had no, almost no machinery. And I don't know if you could start a footwear brand that way these days. Or, or maybe I was just, you know, blissfully ignorant. Um, I think that was a lot of it. And it allowed me to just forge ahead 
not knowing what I didn't know. When I think about, I mean, just cobblers in general, and I mean, it's not a growing industry. Um, I think I have to imagine that was really important for you to get the hands on, on that, that skill of actually building footwear by hand. Um, I, I don't think, I mean, even our design students, I don't think they comprehend what it takes to manufacture footwear. And so I, I imagine that must have kind of altered your perspective on, you know, or maybe given you some confidence around, well, I could start a footwear brand because you were actually building them by hand or, or maybe you didn't know any better. I don't know. What, what was your mindset there? Well, I think, you know, I, I knew how to do craft. Okay. I was very mm. good at making one-off things. And so, you know, I had made a lot of custom-made shoes at that point and I felt like, well, I can, I can kind of figure out anything. And so it was very much sort of a crafty business in the beginning and and the machinery was stuff that I could find that wasn't necessarily shoe specific. And then it was uh, probably three or four years later when I realized that the footbed of the sandal, which was then made out of four or five parts that were all glued together and, and machined and this and that, that I could get that part just molded of polyurethane in one in one fell swoop and it would be much easier and it was kind of a mind expanding experience to realize that and i invested in the in the polyurethane molds at that time and vastly increased uh, our output and also the professionalism or the you know the sophistication of the sandal it was a much better sandal and i invested in the molds at that time and thinking back it was you know the return on investment on the molds my volume was still so low. It was really a leap of faith to spend the money on the molds. Right. Right. So 1989, that first pair is you, you make that right. And this has the pull through strap and buckle versus, or rather than Velcro. Do you, Correct. I mean, can you talk through like why those design decisions and that, that, you know, the focus on those features and what do you think that made that, or what made that compelling to, customers, you know, moving away from Velcro and the the pull through strap and all of that. What led to that idea? Uh, I wish I could say that the pull through strap concept was something that I, you know, dreamed up on my own. But to be honest, um, there was when I was growing up in Buffalo, there was a, a little hippie leather shop at the end of my street called Soul Source. And they made leather belts and watch bands and anything leather. And they made sandals. And I, I had a pair and they were nailed together. Um, I think they didn't use glue and they had a pull through strap system and they offered two or three mm -hmm. styles. Straps were relatively narrow and uh, I had a pair. I thought they were great. And so when I saw the early Tevas and Alp sandals, I thought, wow, great idea, you know, an amphibious sandal. But if we could just incorporate the pull through strap, we would have infinite adjustability. We would avoid Velcro, which uh, on the river became unreliable. Um, your sandals would get wet, you toss them in the sand, the sand would fill up the Velcro and then wouldn't stick very well. Um, oftentimes the Velcro just wore out. And so I thought, mm. well, I think the pull through strap would be be much better, a big advantage. And the very early um, uh, Chaco or Gecko sandals were made out of EVA um, as were Teva and Alps. And then, as I mentioned, when when we were able to buy the mold and we molded uh, the footbeds out of polyurethane, I think that was also a huge advantage. Mm. I can't really find any record of Alps sandals online. Is that a company that faded away to time? I, are they still around? I I don't. I just in the brief searches I've I've done, I don't really see anything about them. So Alps were. Um, were the brainchild of a guy named Ken Young, who is, I guess, as wacko as I was, he was way into um, uh, slings, like David and Goliath. You have this sling that you fling around and you, the stone goes out. He was just a, a crazy guy. And his sandal had lots of um, basically shoelace that went back and forth over the front of your foot. It looked more like a gladiator sandal. And in some ways, they were more secure than the early Tevas, and they had their own sort of cult following. Teva bought Alps, and I don't know the year, but I'm guessing somewhere in the 
early 90s, early to mid 90s, uh, Teva bought Alps. And I think they offered the model for a few years and then uh, just closed it down. Ah, okay. Um, that makes sense because I did see the Teva Alp. So there's still some components of the brand that they had carried, carried forward in some of the products. Um, what do you think it was about, I guess, sports sandals and water sports at, at this time? Um, Teva and Alps before you, and then you, and then, you know, later on, we see Martin Keene developing Keene really born out of sailing and, and, you know, creating that toe protection because he kept stubbing his toe and he was sailing. Um, what do you think it is about water sports and like around this time in particular, where you see these companies springing up was, were there more people getting out and doing these types of activities? Can you attribute that to anything? Oh, definitely. Well, the whole um, white water scene in the 90s was big. I mean, the, yeah. the the white water kayak scene was really big. If you went to OR in the mid 90s, you know, they had the pool and everybody was kayak rolling. And, and every year there was another one or two white water kayak companies that came out. They said, you know, if you have a credit card with a big enough limit, you can buy a roto mold and start making kayaks. And so there were a, there was just a lot of emphasis on whitewater and river sports in general, and I think that really helped. And obviously, if if you're in warm climates and you're in the water, anything other than a sandal, your feet just they look like raisins at the end of the day. It's just it's, they just get white and wrinkly and horrible. So uh, sandals is definitely definitely the way to go. So you you talk about making those initial pairs custom, and that's your first design, right? Um, that's that predate, predates the the Z Z one, um, which we'll talk about. Um, what what were the challenges? And you mentioned some of these of going from custom craft to like small batch or even large manufacturing. And and you were doing this in the states. What were the challenges that you encountered? And you set up manufacturing in in Colorado, right? Footwear manufacturing, which we don't really see today um, in the states. What were the challenges that you were facing going from one-offs to, you know, production runs besides, you know, the money needed to create molds and, and some of the expense? Well, I, that was, that was a big part of it was just being able to tool up. We just, you know, I had, I had woodworking tools in my shop. I had, you know, in the very beginning, I, we hand cut stuff. And then finally I found a clicker to buy and I, you know, put that in the bed of my pickup truck, which it almost sank the truck. And uh, so I, it was really about tooling, and I didn't I didn't know what specialized tooling existed for footwear manufacturing. And as I started to learn about that tooling, I realized that most of it was out of my price range. So the scaling up was really the difficulty was really money and expertise. How, how do we how do we um, how do we scale up so that we can actually produce you know thousands of these things and. In time, we did. You know, our factory in Colorado before it closed down, we were making. Oh gosh, I can't remember the exact numbers, but we had eighty people on the on the assembly line, so it was quite a few sandals a day. Wow, and and did you make that commitment to you know make a large order because of some commitments for from sales from retail partners? I know you sold your first pairs to sit in Glenwood. To Summit Canyon Mountaineering, is that right? Like, was that, was were there some of those first like production batches that you were selling to retail or were you selling some one-offs to retail and then that motivated like making a, an order or, or you know, going to full-scale manufacturing? No, the, everything that we sold at retail was batches. And so we, you know, we'd uh -huh. do a batch of a dozen at a time of a size or a size and a color. And, uh, you know, I remember going to the OR show early on and, and learning about the whole, you know, how do retailers order, what's the seasonality, the preseason orders and the fill-in orders. And and it didn't take long to figure that part out. And and then the hard part was manufacturing for those preseason orders because Seattle company, you know, like a winter boot company, is so seasonal and it's very difficult if you're the manufacturer to try to have the right number when you need to ship. Um, without having a huge outlay of cash because you were working all year to make those sandals that you only got the money for in the spring. Right. Um, I'm, I'm curious about, I, I've, 
it, it, I hope it shows. I, I did a little bit of research. I like read the story, um, but I kind of want to d- dive into some of the details. Like, I know you've talked previously about the difference between the Teva Universal, which was, you know, on store shelves. You know, it was very intuitive for people to to pick that up and strap it on, right? Um, versus your shoe, which required a little bit of you know, there's a learning curve. There's some education that needed to take place. Can you kind of ex- explain that a little bit and how you feel like you ended up winning out? And uh, or did you have to provide a little more education? What did that education look like? I guess, how did you overcome that hurdle of presenting a product that, you know, required a little bit of a little bit of education for the consumer? Right. Well, I can't say that we won out. Uh, there were certain years that I think Chaco sold more than Teva at in the specialty retail channel. But if you took all of retail, you know, big box and department stores and all that kind of stuff, Teva was always bigger than Chaco. So I can't say that we won out in terms of volume. And absolutely, the, the pull-through strap was non-intuitive. If someone didn't explain it and you didn't know, you, you and the straps weren't adjusted right, you could put your foot in and say, oh, this doesn't fit at all. It, it, it won't work for me. And it was a huge impediment in the beginning to sales because... Um, Tevas were just sold often out of a basket on the floor of a whitewater shop and you'd pick them up. And as you say, it was completely intuitive. Chaco was not. And I'd say that the, the real credit for the education goes to our sales reps. And we had just a great group of sales reps, the best of whom would go out in the field and they would fit thousands of people in, in a season. So if they would have contests among the store staff who could fit a Z1 faster than somebody else. They would go to river festivals and events with a van full of sandals and and fit sandals on on potential customers. And it was really the reps who probably touched more consumers and made more strong relationships with store staff. And then those store staff, once again, could instruct new consumers into how to adjust the sandals seems like something that is i don't know if it's necessarily unique to the outdoor industry but it's it is something a special aspect to our industry is like that individual attention right whether it's a rep or whether it's a founder like yourself like sitting next to someone and tracing out their their foot shape like uh, that the importance of the reps and like going out and pushing the pounding the pavement right and going out to stores and hawking you know, sandals out of your trunk. Like I've heard this story from other founders where it's, it's just, it's putting in the time and a lot of individual interactions and education. I think it's a unique aspect of our industry. And I I'm curious how much of that still exists. Obviously there's still reps and there's a lot of education that's still happening, but it seemed like it just, it was the difference maker for, you know, it was make or break for a lot of these early companies. I don't know how you feel about that, but that individualized attention and education, it's that it seems kind of foreign now, right? It's like, it, it doesn't seem like something that is done as much now. It's a different world, of course, but I don't know. Do you have any thoughts on, on kind of that and the importance of that hands-on approach? Um, I, I do think things have changed. I, I think that, you know, there are specialty stores that still, have clinics with the reps where the rep comes in and, and um, instructs or or educates store staff about features and benefits of the product. But I think that retailers are, um, they're, I won't, I won't say struggling, but I think that they're more challenged. I mean, this was all before online. And so people mm-hmm. only went to stores to buy stuff. And so what it wasn't uncommon for a rep to go in either early in the morning with donuts or late in the evening with beers and the store would would pay all the staff to sit around for an hour while the rep came in and maybe presented two or three or four lines that they carried and, and went through these clinics with the employees. And it wasn't just one rep that the store paid the staff to listen to. It was a lot of reps. And so mm-hmm. I, I just don't know that stores have the resources these days to fund that kind of education. What I'm hearing is that, you know, reps are are going in now and, um, you know, basically working the floor with staff that, you know, store owners are less likely to pay for people to come in before or after for a clinic. Um, but I think that the personal nature um, 
of business and that one-to-one communication. And I just don't know that that's happening in quite the same way. Yeah, it's definitely taking a different form for sure if it's happening. Um, I, I do like to make connections between um, the different gear pioneers that we've we've had come on and speak um, and, and tell their story. But it, it just is interesting to see the parallels um, between yourself and and you know the Yvonnes of the world and other other you know people who were just creating a product because it solved their problem. Um, and it's, it's, I get caught up in this in, in our design program where we, we kind of, we challenge our students to try to design products that solve other pre- people's problems, because sometimes they focus so much on designing for themselves and, um, you know, a, a market of one is not, you know, not necessarily a viable, viable business model. Um, where, wh- how do you strike that balance? I know that there's so many of the great you know, founders of our industry designed something for themselves, but they ended up validating it with, with other users, I think is the difference, but do you have any, any thoughts on that? I I just think that is still so important that you were a user, you were a power user, you spent so much time using the product and you understood the problems, but then you went and validated it with, with other users. Yeah, but in the beginning, I wasn't smart enough to know that I was validating it. And I didn't really care Uh too much that I was validating it. What I really wanted to do was make like the most bomb proof, the best fitting, the most supportive sandal. And I wasn't thinking so much about volume. And I wasn't thinking about how big is the market size and what's the average dollar spent on sandals and all that kind of stuff. I was very content to be hyper-focused on a very uh, small segment. And what it turns out was, you know, for whatever reason, there was enough utility in the product that that small segment quickly bled over. And so, you know, for, for the first, I don't know, eight years perhaps, I was really focused on river guides, you know? And the, the best sandal for a river guide, to be honest, is not the best sandal for, you know, general use, even general, um, amphibious use. And so, um, but there was enough utility in the sandal that, you know, soccer moms, they were fine with, with, you know, Chaco as well. My second go around, you know, I'm making sandals now. I don't, I don't want to make that super hyper-focused just for river guides. I, I want to make that sandal that's more universal. The, the double-edged sword there is it's really easy to market when you're going after that really narrow demographic. You know, if you're selling the lightest bike on the market and it costs $15,000, you know exactly who to target. And it's so targeted, but it's so small, the market. But as soon as you say, oh yeah, this bike's really good for a lot of different things, then it's, you're kind of trying to be everything to everybody and it's much more difficult. I, I had a similar conversation with Martin Keen as, and we were talking about the features of, of Keen footwear that make them unique. And I, I, I've been familiar with the product, you know, based in like, you know, the focus being water shoes initially, but then I, I always knew that they had a utility boot and I didn't see the connection. And I, I think this kind of illustrates your point, right? Like it's not, they're not a water shoe company. Right. The, the, the feature that was unique about that product was the toe protection. And that's, that's a, a feature or a function that is more transferable, right? It's not toe protection. Isn't something that just, you know, you need in sailing. Well, it's, it's people that need that are working construction and, and that's where things started to connect the dots, right? It's like finding those features that are more transferable or appeal to different consumers outside of that core niche where maybe you discovered that feature. So I, I think that that's kind of an interesting, uh, maybe a through line here, but um, I'm curious, you know, y- you have that initial product. We, we ought to talk about the Z1. So this is like version two or a, 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 a second product, right? Um, do you mind talking through kind of the origins of that and what needed to change between your first pair and, and this, this new product? Sure. So um, for the first four years, we we messed around with a few different models. Um, 
uh, some of them had uh, a loop that went around your toe and some didn't. And the loop that went around your toe made the sandal tremendously more secure, but it was also uncomfortable for some people. And so my goal um, by like 1992 or so was how can I have an open toe sandal that holds your foot more securely? And so um, basically, you know, if, if you're side hilling and your foot wants to slide off the outside of your sandal, you have the straps towards the front of your foot, which hold your foot from sliding off the sandal footbed. And um, in the case of Chaco, that there was two straps that cross right at the ball of the foot. In the case of Teva, they put that strap further forward, which you would think would hold you even better, except that then it was right on the base of your little toe. And so now your little toe is getting smashed every time uh, your foot slides to the outside. And so that seemed like a conundrum to me. How do you figure this out? And so I found a guy in uh, not too far from me in Colorado, a German trained pedorthist. I didn't know him at all. His name was Gerhard Rill. He's a great guy. And I went to him with my strap problem. And uh, uh, he said, well, Mark, it's it's not so much a strap problem. It's really, it's an arch support issue. And what's happening is certainly the straps need to hold your foot on the footbed. But if your foot was more anatomically shaped, then the biomechanics of your foot would, would result in your foot staying on the footbed more frequently, better. And so I, I was completely ignorant to biomechanics. And so I, I had a pair of open toe uh, uh, Chaco sandals on and he went over to his grinder and he ground out a little arch support and he quick stuck it on my sandal on one foot. And I walked across the room, one sandal had the arch support, one didn't. And I could clearly see that the sandal or the, the foot with the arch support underneath it, the toes tracked straight ahead and the other foot without the arch support, my toes tended to go toward the outside. And that was a huge revelation for me. And I worked with Gerhardt over the next year to develop the Z1 sandal, which had a, a prominent arch support. And the arch support, you know, the benefits were huge. It wasn't just that it kept your foot on the footbed uh, better. It did all kinds of things for you biomechanically. And perhaps the most important thing was it was super comfortable. It was people loved the art support in the sandal. And so then, you know, that became part of the Chaco plan was that, you know, products had an art support. And that started in 1993. And really everything we did after that had some sort of art support. Right. Oh, that's great. I, I failed to mention this too. So you, you've mentioned that the company was called Gecko at one point, then eventually becomes Chaco. When, when did you start going under a, a, a name? Like when did you name this product? When did you see yourself as a, a brand, I guess? Uh, well, at the very beginning, I knew that if I was going to okay. you know, be in stores, I had to have a brand. And so I thought yeah. Gecko came across Gecko Geckos are these uh, lizards. They live in the you know rainforest. They have these really cool paws that they can walk. A, they can climb up a glass window. They can walk across a glass ceiling. They it's something really sticky on their on their feet. And I thought, oh, that's perfect. You know, they thrive in these environments where you'd wear sports sandals, and they're super sticky and they're kind of cute. And so I thought, oh, gecko, that's that's the way to go. And once again, I was pretty ignorant as to most business things. And it wasn't but a couple of years after choosing the name Gecko that I got a letter that was a cease and desist letter from people, a company in Hawaii um, that was selling t-shirts, Gecko Hawaii t-shirts. And they were popular in the early 90s. And the international class, in terms of trademarks, it's by class. And the class that includes footwear also includes apparel. And so they said, you know, cease and desist. And so I negotiated with them and paid them a royalty for a year or two while I worked on changing the name. And then I changed the name. It was early 90s to Chaco. Okay. Oh, that's great. Uh, we, we didn't talk about, speaking of names, the name of the Z1 and the origin of, of that name. Oh, I, was I, was, I was struggling so hard to come up with names. Anybody who's in business knows that names can be the absolute hardest thing. 
And um, I was out with my friend Peter um, on some adventure wearing our sandals. And I told him about my struggles. And he said, well, you should call it Z1. And I said, well, what's that got to do with anything? And he said, you should call it Z1 because it is Z1. And so I thought that was a horrible name. It was too cheesy. I was sure I could come up with something better, but I couldn't. So that's where Z1 came from. And it stuck. It stuck. That's great. That's great. Yeah. No, I'm with you. Uh, anyone who can name things has has a real skill. But clearly, you've you've got it too. You've you've come up with multiple names that have stuck and are iconic. So better at it than you might think, I suppose. Um, you uh, uh, like being a company that is focused um, on more than just profit is is something that is commonplace now in the industry. Um, but this appears to be something that you were focused on early days, this idea of triple bottom line. And um, when when did you think about that? When, I mean, were you thinking of these ideas of being more than just a company that sells products from the early days? Like wh where did that originate from? Did you learn that from someone? Was, was that something you were always passionate about? Um, when I started um, Gacko, Chaco, um, I almost didn't because of the toxicity of the materials that were being used. And um, it was actually my parents who kind of persuaded me to just give it a try. But, you know, I, I had a, a lot of a lot of years sort of living in the woods as a hippie and and being a, a natural kind of guy. And uh, the idea of making uh, plastic garbage was was not really that great. Also, at the time, you had to use solvent-based adhesives, you know, uh, to stick the soles on. Now everything is water-based, and and it just went against my grain. And uh, you know, I did get over it, and and I tried to um, console myself by saying that you know the product that we made not only was it longer lasting than most of the other products on the market, so people were buying less of them. But we also, from the very beginning, our product was resolable, and, and we offered that as a as an option. And I think less than one percent of the people came back and um, had their sandals resold. But I mean, even one percent was a fairly big number. By the time I sold Chaco, you know, we had a whole repair department, and you know, people's dogs would chew their sandals or something would happen that was, you know, negative. And, and we fixed just about anything on the sandal. And even after I sold it to Wolverine, they continued that program. And, and I think that was a great thing for them to do. So I think that's the sort of the basis of my uh, sort of eco triple bottom line came from. Um, but I was also interested in, in making it right as much as I could. Right. Uh, you mentioned selling the company. What what went into that? That this happens in two thousand nine. Um, I mean, what, where were you at when it came to selling the company? And when when did you decide it was time to do something else? The best way I can describe it is this: by the time I was ready to sell Chaco, I had a I, I had a weakness or a problem, and that was finding the fine line between being very involved in all the aspects of the company and not micromanaging people. And so um, I think in some cases I, I made the mistake in both directions. And um, it, it, in one case or, or over a period of time, I thought, oh, everyone's handling everything just, just right. And um, everything's going reasonably well. I have other interests. I, I, I'm, I've done this for a long time, you know. Um, maybe it's time to do something else. And so I really got involved in sailing again. And I, um, and I started taking trips and, and going out and about and having fun. And to be honest, I came back from one of those trips and, and there were things that I should have had my finger on the pulse of um, in a more intimate way. Uh, there were things, there were some problems. And so without going into a lot of details, uh, it seemed like given, you know, my other interests and what was going on, it was a good time to sell. Right. Um, 
I always like to ask this too of of creators and and founders and designers. But do you remember the first time that you saw someone wearing your product and you didn't know that person? Do you do you have any memory of that seeing your product in the wild? I don't have memory of the first time I saw it, but I do remember just an incredible amount of pride seeing your your product walking around, and you know. By the 2000s, you know, if you went to the Denver airport and just walked around, there were a whole lot of Chacos walking around. And certainly if you went to somewhere like the Telluride uh, Bluegrass Festival, it was almost like a, a uniform piece of footwear. And so, I mean, those times were were gratifying. Um, I guess toward the end there, I even got past that or something. It just, it, it didn't move the needle quite as much as it did. Though, to be honest, after I sold it, years after I sold it, I was in Boston uh, working on another project and a woman, I ran into a woman and she was wearing Chacos and without me saying anything, she started gushing about them. And uh, when I told her who I was, she got very emotional about it. And that particular personal connection sort of meant more to me than seeing, you know, a whole bunch of people in the airport, you know, it really, it, it had made a difference in her life. And that was very significant. And that was, it impacted me. And as I work on my current project, that's kind of what I, I want to do again. I, I want to have that direct connection for people who say, not just, oh yeah, I wore your sandals, they're really cool or something like that. I want to hear the stories where it re really changed their lives. And it's easier to do when you have, when the basis of the product is this arch support concept, this biomechanical concept, because there's all kinds of people, all kinds of shoes that become favorite shoes. But for somebody who really needs that biomechanical support, it, it, it's life-changing. And that's a little different than just stylistic preference. Well, I think, I think this is a good time to jump into your current, current work. Um, maybe, maybe share, you've kind of done this already, but, um, is it hard to stay away from footwear? And um, what what led you back into creating Tread Labs? Um, yeah, what what brought you back? I guess, and maybe it is some of the things that you already said, but um, what brought you back? What brought me back? Well, when I sold Chaco, I thought I'm pretty much done with footwear, and I also thought I'm pretty much done with making products and having inventory and that kind of stuff. It just seemed like. What a, what a lot of material stuff, you know? And I don't know, at one point I was writing catalog copy or something. And I think I said, you know, we should make a lot of garbage because everything that we make in, in the outdoor industry, in any industry, in almost any industry, it ends up as garbage, any consumer goods. I mean, not, it doesn't last forever. And there's a huge push now towards circularity and recycled and bio-based. And I applaud all of that. But, you know, whatever, 95% of what we make, it's still garbage. And so I thought I was completely done with that. I went on, you know, I went and had some fun and I came back and I was bored. And um, my son said, well, maybe you should, maybe you should try clothing, you know? So I messed around with clothing for a few years. I had a, a business called Osmium and um, it was pretty interesting clothes, but in the end, it, it didn't have my passion. And to be honest, I, I wasn't very successful at it. And so toward the end of Osmium, my uh, non-compete with Wolverine ended. And so I thought, well, maybe I'll maybe I'll dip my toe in the water and, and do shoes again. And so I started to create a shoe program for Osmium. And the shoes were leather shoes made in USA. Uh, they had to be expensive because they're made here. And as I was developing the insoles for those shoes, once again, coming back to my biomechanical experience and wanting to give people a really robust arch support, um, I realized that the insoles for the shoes were actually a better business choice than the shoes themselves. And so that's sort of how I slid back into footwear. And so I started Tread Labs uh, in 2000. 2016, 2015, excuse me, and making insoles, trying to give people what I had given them with Chaco, but for any kind of shoe that they might wear. 
And we bumbled along. You know, you'd think that I'd be really good at this after doing it once, but you know, you, you still make mistakes. Um, but luckily, um, insoles are pretty high margin. And so um, after we started seeing some success, it started throwing off a little bit of cash. And I thought, oh, a little bit of cash. What could I do with this? Oh, I could start making samples again. And so <laughs> I just, you know, it had been, what, 30 years since I developed Chaco. And I thought, I've learned a lot in that time. And it would be really fun to try and do something that was very different, had some of the same uh, benefits to the consumer, but in a very different package, a more universal package and a package that think? was informed by some of the things I had learned. So, yeah. What, what are some of those takeaways that you learned over, over time that, you know, when you got the chance to do it over again, you, you did things different. Uh, well, one thing was I didn't want to do the pull through strap, <laughs> pull through strap. It, it's a great design and it works really well, but it's kind of, you know, been there, done that. Like once you've done something, I, I just don't want to copy myself. That didn't seem to be going anywhere. So I wanted to come up with, you know, designs that didn't use a pull-through strap. Also, Chaco's in the beginning and even toward the end, they were designed to last a very, very long time. And I'm not saying that I, I want to make stuff that doesn't last a long time. I absolutely do. But the sandals, the Chaco sandals were kind of hard and kind of heavy. And if you were a river guide, you know, walking on really rough terrain all summer long, that was great. But if you're walking around town, they're kind of hard and kind of heavy. And I just wanted to make something that was lighter weight, a little bit more user-friendly, a little bit more cushioned. Um, the Having your foot rest directly on the polyurethane on um, Chaco sandals is not always the most comfortable. It's extremely utilitarian if you're in and out of the water because it dries immediately. But it's not that comfortable. And so I wanted to offer, you know, again, a synthetic that you could take in the water, but something that was a little bit more friendly for daily use. So those are some of the things that I wanted to do. I wanted to use as, as much uh, recycled material as I could. Um, so that's the, the basis of Treadlabs. That's great. Well, I guess with that said, I mean, we're kind of coming to coming to the end, unless we've missed some some topics along the way. But um, what what excites you about the future um, and the work that you're doing in life? Like what what gets you up in the morning? What are you excited about? Well, at Chaco, I probably waited, I don't know, 10 or 12 years before I introduced shoes. And so we were really a sandal company. And when we introduced shoes, it was hard to convince people to buy something from us other than sandals. And Martin Keene was very smart with that. He offered his sandal and I think a year or two later, he started making shoes. And so I wanted to take take a lesson from Martin and, uh, and introduce shoes soon after sandals. And so we've been working on shoes here for a little while and it's a perfect, it dovetails perfectly because we'll put in the insoles that we've been making for years and that we know are proven and well-loved uh, by many people. So when we sell shoes, our shoes will have Treadlabs insoles uh, inside, uh, obviously removable and, and they can customize, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and again, I'm just trying to find that, what I call the white space. Um, when, when I designed the Treadlabs sandals, I was looking for that white space that's in between uh, that that services uh, an unmet need. And so I saw that space as, you know, lighter than the Chaco sandals I had done before and a little bit more user-friendly, but, you know, more like a Birkenstock, but then certainly more water-friendly than Birkenstock. And so when I look at shoes and I think of, you know, what's the most ubiquitous shoe if you go to the airport, what are more people wearing than anything else? Well, it's, it's you know, some sort of a running shoe or a, you know, athletic shoe. And so how can we how can you take the best aspects of the most common shoe, an athletic shoe, and make it more comfortable, more supportive, um, you know, a little bit more sophisticated, not sophisticated, but a little bit upscale looking and certainly uh, more durable. And what does that package look like? And so that's really what I've been working on on the shoes and it's super fun. And I have a great uh, footwear developer that I work with in China. Um, and so I, I travel there and, and work with her. And I, I'd say that's that and, and growing the team here 
I'd say it's sort of the organizational and the product side are the things that are most interesting for me for the future. That's exciting. Um, are you one to think about the past or reflect much? I, I know we're doing that now. I'm kind of forcing you into that. But um, as you reflect on like your own history, your own contributions, do you have thoughts or feelings about that? Or you're not someone that that lingers too much on on that? Oh, I don't know. I, I, I don't linger too much on it. I mean, during this conversation, I think back to those early days, you know, and I think that that sort of rabid um, commitment, that sort of driving towards excellence, um, you know, it, it, second best is not good enough, um, and and really living the product. I mean, all the early the early Chaco sales meetings were all either camping or river trips. Uh, there was no PowerPoint. There was no flip charts. Um, it was very raw and visceral and personal, and it was great. <laughs> there were a lot of very strong relationships that developed out of those those meetings and those interactions, and I kind of miss that. And it's not, the, not something that we can go back to. We live in a different world with email and social media and all these things that didn't exa- exist back then, but sometimes I miss that. I miss that sort of vis- visceral storytelling communication that happened. I don't know. Well, is there anything that we've missed? I'm sure we missed some things, but anything else for the record that, you know, you maybe has come up over the course of the conversation? Oh, we've missed a million things. There's a million little <laughs> stories, but no, I think, I think you've done a good job of um, pulling the, pulling the, the main things out of my, out of my past. And um, it's been fun. Well, you've done more than most. You've you have been more public about your story and documented it and written it down in your own words, which was helpful for me as I was crafting some of these questions. So, I mean, kudos to you for for at least telling your story. A, a lot of people are haven't been so good about doing that. So, I, I appreciate that. Thanks for listening to the Highlander podcast. For more conversations with outdoor leaders, subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Watch episodes on the Outdoor Product Design and Development YouTube channel or on opdd.usu.edu slash podcast. Follow along on Instagram at USU Outdoor Product and let us know how you're enjoying the show.